All right. Welcome, everyone, to the special podcast episode today, where we're going to be talking to Dr. David Clark about chronic pain. David Clark is the president of the Psychophysiologic Disorders Association, and his formal background is in gastro gastroenterology and uh, internal medicine but he is most well known for his uh, practice in psychosomatic pain neuroplastic pain um chronic pains of various kinds um all sort of basically uh, or or as, as he calls it stress illness um in his website but all those things just basically boil down to pain that is caused by the mind, by the brain, due to various stresses and traumas, rather than something that is structurally oriented. So having some kind of pain in your your knee or your elbow or your stomach, um, in certain cases, uh, it originates from the mind rather than the body. And this is a field of medical science that I've become quite interested in as of late for a number of reasons that I'll get into at a future time because I'm still personally exploring this for myself. But we're going to be talking to Dr. Clark today about his practice, about his experience in the field, and of treating over 7,000 patients who have been struggling with chronic pain and haven't been able to get to the bottom of it by all the conventional means that uh, our current medical system provides. So we're going to start... uh, talking to David here. All right, I've invited Dr. Clark to talk. All right. I think I'm in. Hi, Dr. Clark. How are you? Just great, thanks. Beautiful day here in Portland, Oregon. That's awesome. Here it's really nice, too, here in Vancouver. Well, I'm looking forward to our discussion. Yeah, yeah, me as well. We've already spoken a couple of times privately, um, and you've offered some really powerful insights about things that I'm experiencing right now and things that I'm struggling with. Um, But I, I, I I should say I came across your work through Alan Gordon's work, his book, The Way Out, um, which for people who are listening who are not familiar, um, Alan Gordon is a psychotherapist um, who specializes in psychosomatic pain. And his book, The Way Out, lays out um, a very clear method for overcoming chronic pain using um, somatic tracking, as he calls it, which is basically dissociating physical pain uh, from emotional pain um, and learning to uh, embrace it and welcome it and to eliminate some of the fear and anxiety surrounding it. So I started reading his book as well as John Sarno's book, who's also a prominent figure in this field. And so I, I came across your work and was very interested. So I'm glad to uh, be speaking to you today. Well, thank you. I appreciate uh, the interest. Uh, it's a problem that afflicts about 40% of the people who go to visit a physician. Um, but unfortunately, most physicians haven't had any formal training in, in how to do the uh, proper evaluations for this condition. And consequently, uh, there are too many patients that get uh, an incomplete assessment, I would call it. Um, you know, the physicians would be 
strongly focused in on the part of the body that is experiencing the symptom. Uh, but if they don't find an organ disease or a structural abnormality, uh, too often they're at a loss. Um, but it turns out that um, many of these symptoms are generated by the brain and that the brain is doing this in response to one or more sources of stress in a person's life. But if you know what to look for, you can find those stresses, you can treat them successfully, and people can start feeling better and even get complete relief from their symptoms. Um, the problem is that not enough healthcare professionals know how to do these assessments, not enough know what to look for, and consequently, uh, these patients, unfortunately, fall into the biggest blind spot in healthcare, And it's a huge source of entirely unnecessary suffering. Mm. Right. And before we get into the specific approach and the specific uh, philosophy, um, can we first of all maybe lay out why you think that our medical system just completely misses this part of medicine of chronic pain that originates from the mind? Like, why is that something that is rarely ever talked about in mainstream science? Well, it's, it's kind of falls in between the, you know, interstitial spaces of the healthcare profession. The medical professionals don't learn about the psychology of the situation. They don't learn how to assess an individual for the psychosocial issues. And then on the other hand, the mental health professionals uh, in the healthcare system are typically not getting any formal training in how to evaluate someone who's got a physical symptom. You know, you typically, if you've got a headache or bowel problems or difficulty breathing, you're not going straight uh, to a mental health professional to get assessed for that. And in their training, mental health professionals, if they, you know, have a patient that tells them about their bodies uh, having symptoms, they don't have that background. They don't have that training. Uh, and they are typically going to respond to that by saying, you know, go back and talk to your doctor. So the, the patient, unfortunately, is left uh, right in the middle. The medical professionals don't know how to do the psychosocial assessment. The mental health professionals are uncomfortable dealing with a physical symptom. And patients wander from clinician to clinician, they look for alternative healthcare options, um, and they generally don't get the answers they need uh, from anywhere. And it's been like this for uh, hundreds of years. There are a few physicians uh, in the history of medicine that have recognized that this is a problem. The one that I like to quote uh, the most, who's named Francis Peabody, gave a wonderful 6,000-word speech at Harvard in 1925 that was later published in the Journal of the American Medical Association. And he understood this. He, he knew that we, sh as physicians, shouldn't limit ourselves to conditions that are um, organ diseases or structural abnormalities, that there's more to medicine than that. 40% of the people that consult us um, about why they are ill or in pain um, have a brain-generated symptom. And he knew that you needed to look into the patient's personal life, the stresses they were coping with, if you were going to find the answer to that. So we, we've known this for, you know, 100 years or more. Um, but unfortunately, the tsunami of medical technology that has overrun medicine has caused us to lose sight of this whole branch of medicine. And the patients get an incomplete evaluation as a result. 
So you're saying 40% of patients have psychosomatic pain, pain that originates from the mind. And what percentage of physicians are experienced in mind-body medicine? I assume it's something like less than a percent, if we could even put a number on it. It's very rare, right? Yeah, I mean, I would say less than one in a thousand, unfortunately. Mm, right. And with your uh, uh, psycho, uh, psychophysiological disorder uh, association, um, you, that, that's the work you guys are doing, right? Of spreading more awareness and of training more physicians in this field? Yes. Um, on our website, endchronicpain.org, we have a training course. Uh, we have a recording of our uh, most recent conference from last October. Uh, we've got uh, a textbook that's been out for uh, just a couple of years called Psychophysiologic Disorders that's written by uh, clinicians from 16 different specialties from all over the English-speaking world. Uh, so we've got lots of resources now for people to learn um, how to diagnose and treat this condition. Um, and, you know, I give uh, presentations all over North America and in Europe. Um, and there's a, a lot of interest in this now, fortunately. Um, the opioid epidemic, I think, has caused people to realize uh, that uh, we can't just throw narcotics at, at people's symptoms and expect that we're going to have a long-term solution. In fact, we're harming people. Uh, they end up with a uh, habituation to the medications, which lose their effectiveness over time. We've got a massive overdose problem in the United States with tens of thousands of people overdosing on these medications. So the healthcare profession is looking for a scientifically valid alternative solution. And in the last couple of years, <clears throat> we've got uh, randomized controlled trials, scientific gold standard that show how dramatically effective these mind-body techniques can be in alleviating symptoms. Right. Yeah, and if anybody's listening, um, in my view, at this moment, uh, the best place to start would probably be with Alan Gordon's book, as you and I have also privately talked about, uh, Dr. Clark. Um, his book, The Way Out, which I'm finishing reading, is excellent. Um, and it's about uh, what I was saying earlier, about dissociating the emotions and the anxiety and the fear and the stress from the actual physical pain. Uh, and then from that, you probably want to connect with a therapist and go deeper into your work, look at some of these resources on your website and all of that I'm still navigating uh, in real time and exploring. Um, and so anybody who's struggling with that, I, I would recommend to follow uh, that's a similar trajectory. But uh, Dr. Clark, uh, how did you get into this field? How did you come across this? Because that is not, that isn't where you started, of course. Um, I'm wondering at which point did you come across this personally or with patients and, and how this became one of your specialties. Yeah, I never suffered from this myself, so I was you know, completely unfamiliar. I went through a very traditional training program in medical school. You know, it's I'm I'm as normal a physician uh, as you'd ever want to meet. I'm board certified in two specialties, and it wasn't until my eighth year of formal training. You know, four years of medical school, three years of residency in a hospital, and then another two years for um, to become a gastroenterologist. And in the first of those two years, I encountered a patient who had a really severe gastrointestinal condition that another university had been unable to uh, find an explanation for. 
Uh, she was sent to my university, UCLA, um, to get additional testing, which was also normal. And we were at a loss. You know, we had no idea what was wrong with her, no idea what to do next. I was doing something like an exit interview with her, apologizing that we hadn't been able to find a better answer for her. Uh, but just, you know, asked her about stress in her life one more time. And, you know, at first she was saying, you know, she really didn't have any. She was happily married, had two kids, um, worked half time in a bank, uh, which she enjoyed, uh, really didn't have any stress in her life. So I asked her about stress earlier on, um, thinking that perhaps something had happened to her two years earlier when her illness began. But her response was to tell me about stress that she'd had as a, as a little girl. She had been abused uh, repeatedly, um, and this had lasted for a period of eight years. So it was a very significant trauma that had happened to her. But, you know, she was now in her mid to late 30s. Um, no one had touched her against her will for 25 years. So it didn't seem possible that something from the remote past could suddenly trigger an illness um, in a woman in her mid-30s who was otherwise doing well. But um, I knew of a psychiatrist at UCLA that had an interest in these issues. I got the patient an appointment with that psychiatrist, not really believing anything was going to come of it, um, and was shocked to learn a few months later that the patient had been completely cured of this you know, very serious uh, condition um, by 10 or 12 counseling sessions with the psychiatrist. So just conversations um, had alleviated this illness. I had no idea that such a thing was possible. Um, it totally shocked me. Um, but I, I thought, you know, this is uh, something that I may encounter again in my career, so I should learn about this. And I, I worked with Dr. Kaplan over the remaining year and a half or so of my training uh, to get a basic framework for how to think about this, uh, never anticipating that I was going to be seeing five or six patients a week with these problems. Um, and that in Portland, Oregon, where I was in practice, there were no Harriet Kaplans who knew about how to do this. So I had to teach myself um, how to diagnose this condition, how to treat it. Um, and I was getting good results, even as a beginner. Uh, these ideas are so powerful uh, in alleviating people's illnesses that I was helping patients that previously no one else had helped. Um, and it, it um, just became uh, um, a specialty of mine. It was about 35% of my patients that suffered from this, um, thousands and thousands over the years. Um, and I was good enough at it that, uh, you know, I got the Doctor of the Year Award uh, when I was only 37 from a, a very large um, health organization that I worked for at the time. Um, I was starting to get patients referred to me who didn't have gastrointestinal problems uh, just because they were mysterious, because they had forms of illness that um, were not explained by an organ disease or a structural abnormality. And so the other doctors who knew what I was doing, they, they sent me these patients just hoping I could help out. And sure enough, they turned out to have psychosocial stresses causing their symptoms as well. Uh, and it, that's, that's how it all started. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's super interesting. And before we get into some specific examples, which we briefly talked about before we started this podcast, 
um, w w what does the treatment look like generally? So all these patients are coming to you, uh, 35% or so um, of patients who have psychosomatic pain. What does treatment look like? Is it just, it's not just deferring them to a psychiatrist or a psychotherapist like you did with the first person, right? Is there anything else that's involved in that apart after they're um, properly diagnosed and you've ruled out any structural issues? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I would do what I call a stress evaluation. And, you know, this is you know, laid out in detail uh, in my own book called They Can't Find Anything Wrong. I'm using four dozen case histories uh, to illustrate the, the range of different stresses that are capable of causing physical illness. And that's what I would assess for. Uh, do you have stress in your life at the moment? Um, or are you the kind of person that takes care of everybody else in your world, but you have difficulty putting yourself on the list of people you take care of. That's a, a common issue for people. And um, they are, in effect, living life as if on a treadmill that they never get off. And sooner or later, that can catch up with you. Um, but the biggest shock of you know my medical training, the biggest shock of my uh, career as a practitioner was finding out that stress when you were a child could make you ill as an adult. And sometimes the illness wouldn't start, you know, when you were still a child, it would start in the, you know, in midlife, like that very first patient whose illness began when she was 35 and um, the abuse she had suffered uh, had stopped when she was 12. So um, I learned to look for that. Was there treatment of the child that would lower their self-esteem, would impact their their self-image in a negative way. Um, you know, almost any treatment of a child that uh, you wouldn't want for a child of your own or a child that you care about um, is capable of causing um, uh, long-term emotional impact, long-term impact on personality, um, can result in, in uh, triggering situations um, that can happen well into the adult years. So I learned to look for um, to talk to people about stress when they were a child. And then finally, the other parts of the stress evaluation were to look for um, evidence of depression, uh, an anxiety disorder perhaps, or uh, a trauma. You know, that somebody had been through a horrifying or terrifying experience uh, that was still impacting them today, that they might have nightmares about it or flashbacks to the traumatic event or they might be constantly watchful or avoid certain situations that reminded them of the trauma. Um, these were things that I would also look for. Many cases of depression, for example, uh, present themselves to the healthcare system not with feeling depressed, not with feeling like you might be on the verge of doing harm to yourself, but with physical symptoms instead. Um, and that confuses a lot of um, medical providers. Um, that they, you know, they go looking for the organ disease. They, they focus on the part of the body that is having the symptom when, in fact, the, the problem is coming from depression or anxiety. And it can be not obvious. You, know, you can ask many of these patients, do you feel depressed? Do you feel anxious? And that's not really what they're feeling. Uh, they'll, they'll say yes to being stressed or being frustrated or being exasperated, but they don't necessarily have that subjective feeling of depression or anxiety. So you have to dig a little deeper into some of the, the secondary symptoms of these mental health conditions, sleep problems, energy problems, appetite problems, uh, feeling like your life is not worth living, 
feeling like activities that you used to love to do uh, no longer have any joy associated with them. Um, it, it can be, um, you know, these can be subtle diseases that uh, not every physician is experienced in uh, assessing for. So it's a, it's a bit of an elaborate process to make sure you investigate for all the different possible causes of stress-related illness. But if you're thorough about it, you almost always will come up with what's really going on, um, what's really causing the, the brain to generate symptoms. Because, you know, I should point out there is research now um, using MRIs of the brain that show that people with these conditions, their brains are anatomically different. The parts of their brains that become active in response to pain, for example, are different than the parts of the brain that become active in response to pain in healthy people, in people who don't have irritable bowel or fibromyalgia or bladder spasms. Um, they, uh, the circuits that become active are functionally different uh, in people with this condition. So, you know, some patients get defensive and they say, well, doctor, do you think this is all in my head? And my answer to that is absolutely not. These symptoms are real uh, and they're in your brain, uh, not imaginary. Before we get into the treatment, which I wanted to talk to you about, you know, what does treatment look like? Do we know what the exact psychophysiologic mechanism um, that is there that is causing these physical symptoms? Like, do we know what's happening in the body or rather in the mind that like, how do, how do we know that the mind is creating these symptoms? Like apart from all these incredible testimonies and all of this effectiveness that you've shown in your work and other research that's been done, do we actually know what the exact um, psychophysiologic processes in the body and in the mind that's causing these physical symptoms? Yeah, I, you know, there's still research uh, ongoing uh, to work out uh, the details, but the basic process, uh, you know, there's, everybody's experienced uh, a sensation of a knot in their belly when they're in a tense situation. That's a classic psychophysiologic reaction that almost everybody has had. Um, you know, that something is happening in the world that is causing you to um, be anxious or tense, and you end up feeling a sensation in your abdomen in response to that. That's a mind-to-body uh, reaction that most people have had at one time or another. Uh, something as simple as blushing with embarrassment. You know, once again, you're embarrassed. That's a, a mind condition, but it causes a physical reaction in the flushing in your face. Um, a more significant one is what's called phantom limb pain, where somebody has had um, uh, an arm or a leg uh, removed, and yet the individual feels pain in that location, which is clearly not coming from the arm or the leg, which is now you know no longer present. So that is an example of a, a pain that is being generated by the brain. Um, and, you know, all pain is, is felt in the brain. Um, the brain is actually um, making a decision when it gets signals from the body about whether you are going to feel pain from those signals in the body or not. When it wants to alert you that you need to be protective of that part of the body, that that part of the body has been injured, say when you whack your thumb with a hammer, um, <clears throat> your brain gets those signals from the thumb and it says, okay, we're going to inform you that there is pain there so that you will be 
uh, protective of that thumb and not injure it any further. Uh, but in other situations, uh, your brain can um, decide you don't need that signal. There are countless examples of um, soldiers who've been wounded in military combat who don't feel pain from those wounds um, because their their brain has decided that uh, they don't need that signal at that particular point in time. So the, the brain has a tremendous amount of power uh, for determining what kinds of uh, injuries in the body are painful, or uh, it can also generate a pain signal when um, there is something emotional or stressful going on. Um, but it's it's all down to the brain doing this, um, and it's you know still like I say, working out the details um, of exactly uh, how the brain does this. But it's it's been pretty well worked out. And when it comes to chronic pain. Do you know what's happening? Like when somebody has a pain in their wrist or their knee or or in their stomach or acid reflux or a host of any other things, and it's been there for years or even decades, and it just won't go away no matter what they do, or it may fluctuate, it may get better at times and then get worse, but it just, it's, there's no obvious treatment to it. Do, do we know what the brain is doing then? Well, you know, it's, again, the the brain generates pain as a danger signal that there is something there is something wrong and in the case of psychophysiologic pain what's usually wrong is that there's a stress or there's an emotion you know so many of my patients have had a powerful negative emotion um, that they are not fully aware of they are not fully conscious of it they can have tremendous amounts of anger fear shame, grief, guilt, um, more than one of those in some cases um, that they are not consciously aware of. Um, one of my patients, for example, was hospitalized at a major university in the West Coast of the United States uh, with attacks of uh, nausea, vomiting, and extreme dizziness. Um, she was in the hospital four times a year for 15 years. Uh, with no diagnosis, you know, every test you can think of that would be relevant for someone with those symptoms was done often more than once, no diagnosis. They had a psychiatrist interview her uh, in the third year of her illness, um, found no traditional psychiatric diagnosis in her case. Um, but what was going on was that all of her episodes of illness, um, which occurred six to ten times a year, were connected with encounters with her abusive mother. Uh, you know, her mother was verbally and emotionally abusive towards her, um, starting when she was three years old. When I saw her, she was age 50. Mom was in her 70s and was still emotionally and verbally abusive towards her, creating a tremendous amount of emotional tension in that relationship, uh, creating all kinds of anger. Um, but because this had been going on since she was very young, um, those emotions had been suppressed, they had been buried, and they were not open to her conscious awareness. And so they were manifesting themselves um, physically in the form of these symptoms. And it was because the, the brain, uh, the circuits in the brain were um, generating that particular symptom uh, and making it seem for all the world like it was coming from uh, her body, but it, it was not. And the, the clue and the um, 
the concept that finally made this clear to her was that she would always get one of her symptoms, one of her attacks, whenever she was a, about 45 minutes uh, away from her home um, driving through the this town. And it never failed. She always got one of her attacks, and she could never figure out what was triggering these episodes. There was nothing about this town that otherwise had any significance to her. Uh, wow. And wow. I was able to figure out that uh, the only time she ever went through this town was when she was on her way to visit her mother. So during the 45 minutes that she was driving in that direction, she would be thinking about how horrible the upcoming visit with her mom was going to be. And the tension would just build and build and build until the attack of dizziness and vomiting took place. And as soon as she saw that connection, um, it made a, a huge difference for her because you know, one of the things I pointed out was that, you know, I asked her, what happens if you drive 45 minutes in some other direction? And, of course, nothing happened. As long as she wasn't going to visit her mom, she was fine. And that was a, a huge light bulb moment for her. I can still remember her looking up at the ceiling and saying, oh, my goodness, uh, I can't believe it. And in her case, just bringing this into conscious awareness uh, was enough to alleviate her episodes. Once she, once she knew um, consciously, cognitively, uh, about how huge the uh, anger was towards her mother, how the, huge the emotional tension was, um, then she could think about it, she could talk about it, she could write about it, and it, these emotions no longer had to manifest via her body. She never had another attack. Wow. Wow, that's incredible. Um, and so what does the treatment exactly look like then? Um, generally speaking, I guess, uh, before we get into a couple of other examples, um, like we, first of all, you do the stress evaluation that you were talking about earlier. And, and in this example you just gave right now, you identify a certain trigger that causes this pain. And then you, you talked about writing it all out, writing it all out and identifying it and, conceptually understanding it and bringing it to the forefront of yes. one's consciousness. But what does generally, like, what does that generally look like? And since you're not a psychotherapist, you know, you were getting all these patients you were saying earlier that were coming to you and certain people were referring their patients to you who had these issues. What do, what did you do then? Did you then collaborate with a psychotherapist and, and figure out what was wrong with this patient and, and, or, or rather after figuring out what was wrong with this patient that you realized stress was the cause, how were you able to treat that? Because you don't have a background in psychology or psychotherapy or neuroscience. So how were you able to treat all these patients? Well, a lot of the patients I did send to um, a mental health uh, department, mental health practitioners, but unfortunately um, the majority of mental health treatment these days is something called uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, which is more about helping people cope with their physical symptoms, um, more about uh, having them change certain thoughts and behaviors, uh, but it doesn't really get into the deeper causes of psychophysiologic pain. So uh, a large number of those patients uh, came back after they had had their cognitive behavioral therapy and said, you know, my physical symptoms really aren't any better. Uh, what can we do now? And so 
I, you know, they, they had nowhere else to go. So I tried to treat them myself um, in a limited way uh, by uncovering the psychosocial issues that were responsible for their illness, um, by making it as clear to the patient as I could what the stresses were that were going on, by initiating some treatment for those stresses. Because the, the hard part in this is to identify the stresses. This is the part that physicians haven't been taught how to do, that uh, mental health professionals haven't been taught how to do for physical symptoms. So if I was able to identify the particular stress or stresses that were responsible for the symptoms, and if I could make that connection clear to the patient, then they could go back to a psychotherapist with something solid to talk about, and then they'd be much more likely to make progress. But essentially, the treatment had to do with, you know, figuring out what the stresses were, and then, you know, usually uh, the treatment was fairly straightforward. If, if somebody was um, on that treadmill of taking care of everybody else in their world, um, but never giving themselves a break, never uh, taking time for activity with no purpose but their own joy, um, then I could help them learn that skill. That turns out to be an essential human skill, being able to um, set aside the needs of everybody else in your world and just focus on yourself. Put yourself on the list of people you take care of for a few hours every week. Um, and that was a very effective treatment. Um, for people recovering from childhood stress, um, the, the key there was to help people recognize just how powerful those issues were. Because none of us has a parallel life we can compare with. So many of my patients, when they look back at their childhood, they would initially say, you know, it wasn't that bad. Other people have been through worse than what I went through, and they seem to be okay. Uh, or, you know, I think I've recovered from most of that. It was a long time ago. Um, but then I would ask them to imagine their own child or a child that they care about um, growing up in the same circumstances uh, that they did. And, you know, a, a typical thing I would do is to have the patient imagine themselves as a butterfly on the wall of their childhood home, watching their own kid try to cope with that, even for just a week. Um, one of my patients who, you know, grew up with both her parents uh, verbally fighting with each other all the time, emotionally abusing each other all the time. And she was the only child and she would try to be the peacemaker. And of course, you know, she failed, you know, all the time because, you know, no eight-year-old is going to be able to solve a problem like that. So <clears throat> her parents eventually divorced, but unfortunately they continued to live in the same household. They slept in separate bedrooms, but they were still living in the same house, still fighting with each other. And my poor patient as a little girl was still trying to solve their problems for them and feeling very badly that she was not succeeding, you know, felt badly about herself as a person. And she began having um, a variety of different psychophysiologic physical symptoms starting at age 13 that <clears throat> continued for the next 20 years. And it also affected her personally in terms of the kinds of relationships that she found herself in. So many of my patients, uh, when they grow up with people who are dysfunctional or who have uh, you know, lots of needs that meet, need to be met, they end up choosing people like that to be in relationships with. And they can't seem to not choose people like that to be in relationships with. Uh, 
they, you know, they'll break up with one and then they'll choose another one who's also got, you know, lots of needs. So, you know, by helping a person see these connections, um, you know, that particular patient, I had her imagine um, her beloved niece who was, uh, you know, about five or six years old. And I said, imagine your niece uh, being in that household with your parents who are fighting with each other all the time. And you're a butterfly on the wall and you're watching your niece try to cope with your parents uh, for, you know, just a week or so, uh, what would that be like for you? And, you know, up to that point, she'd been saying, you know, my parents, they weren't that bad. I coped with it. Um, I really don't think that it's affected me that much. Um, but when I asked her to imagine um, this beloved niece of hers trying to cope with the same thing, she just stopped talking and stared at me. Um, for a couple of minutes. And I just sat and gazed back at her, just letting her process this thought experiment I had just inflicted on her. And after a couple of minutes, the next thing she said was, you know, after watching my niece try to cope with that for a week, I would shoot myself. Um, and it finally became clear to her from this thought experiment, just what a huge burden she'd had to deal with. Uh, because, you know, obviously she was in that environment for 18 years um, and she finally became manifest uh, just how severe an impact it had been on her. And once she could see that, then she had something to, you know, go to a therapist and, you know, talk about at considerable length. So that was, uh, you know, a good example of my practice style to help people make these connections between their stresses and their illness. And once they could see those connections, they could go to a more traditional type of therapist and make progress. Wow. Wow. That, that story is incredible. And I'm curious how that story then proceeds after you send this person to the therapist, but I'll just make a note here and then say that it, it is interesting that you in your practice sort of became more of a, uh, an improvised counselor in this process of helping people identify their stresses rather than just a, a physician, like this work you're describing of helping people identify what things may have caused these um, psychological and physical issues, identifying the certain childhood factors and stresses right now of, you know, driving in the proximity of your mother's home or uh, juggling various things in your life, like all these things this is not, what you would think of as a work that this is not what you would think of as work that a physician would do. This, this sounds more. No, like a, I, a very I never, I never expected to be doing work like this, Rob. Absolutely not. I mean, I, the other two thirds of my practice was the most normal gastroenterology type practice you'd ever you know want to see. I mean, it, you know, I'm putting endoscopes inside people, snipping things out, cauterizing ulcers, getting tissue samples from the liver, plucking gallstones out of bile ducts. You know, it, it was, it had nothing to do with psychology at all. And, and I kept wondering in my early years, if somebody was going to come along and say, you know, you really, as a physician, shouldn't be doing this psychological stuff. We have other people who can do that for you. Uh, don't worry about it. But, you know, nobody ever came and said that because this is such a blind spot in healthcare. Um, as I mentioned at the very beginning, there weren't any physicians doing the psychological aspects of this. There weren't any mental health professionals who were comfortable 
with patients who were physically ill. Um, and so nobody was doing this. So I, I thought, you know, um, I need to help these patients as best I can. And I had to learn through trial and error uh, the kinds of techniques that would make a difference for people. And even as a beginner back in the 1980s, um, I was getting uh, to help people. Patients were improving in ways that um, they had not improved with treatment elsewhere in the healthcare system. Uh, you know, one of my patients had been ill for 55 years. Um, when I saw him, it was before we had uh, electronic medical records, and I was given volume three of his chart, which was eight centimeters thick, and that was just volume three, uh, full of diagnostic tests that didn't show anything, full of treatments that didn't work. And, you know, it turned out that, you know, here he was, a 74-year-old man. It turned out he'd been a physically abused as a boy. Um, he didn't like to talk about it. <clears throat> he didn't like to talk about much of anything. Um, but his wife was there with him, and she filled in a lot of the blanks for me. So I got a pretty good um, idea of what he'd been struggling with. But 55 years... Uh, anyway, I sent him to a um, a combination support group and uh, class where you know they talked about the long term impacts of uh, an abusive childhood background. And he came back two months later after he'd attended all the classes, and he said, in the first two classes, he didn't say anything because you know, so this was a guy that would give me two or three word answers to all my questions. I mean, he just getting the story out of him was like cross-examining a, a crime boss on the witness stand. I mean, he just wasn't giving anything away. <laughs> um, but in the third class uh, with this group, he finally let two sentences out about himself and his experience. And then he stopped and he waited for the, you know, somebody else to pick up the conversational ball. Uh, but nobody did. You know, it was a pretty savvy class at this point. Everybody had been sharing you know, very personal information with other members of the class. And they all just sat there and, and waited for him to say more. And there was this long, awkward pause, and he felt a lot of pressure to start talking again. And eventually he did. He started talking again. And once he, he started, he couldn't stop. I mean, the dam burst. Uh, he went on for, you know, what he told me, 35 or 40 minutes, uh, which for him was the equivalent of a Russian novel. Uh, and he, he got you know, this enormous catharsis of sharing his story with a supportive audience, really for the first time in his life. And he noticed after that class that he wasn't having his stomach pains anymore. And the week after that, still no stomach pains. And six weeks after that, he came back to see me for his follow-up visit, still no stomach pains. Uh, first time he'd gone more than a week or two in 55 years. And, you know, I said, if it ever comes back, you call me, you come and see me. Uh, but he did great. It, you know, that was all it took was just uh, one opportunity to uh, unburden himself with a supportive group. Um, and, you know, I, I never would have gotten into this if the healthcare profession or if there was another physician um, were adequately caring for this, you know, enormously common problem. But I was the only one who was doing it. I mean, that's why they gave me the Doctor of the Year award, because uh, I was taking care of all these patients successfully that um, other members of the healthcare profession were beating their head against the wall over.
Mm. And with your patients generally, so at some point you would, like, let, let's say in most cases, you would then defer to some kind of a class or psychotherapy group or counselor. Um, like after a certain point, did you decide that that was the best way to go? Or, or were you sort of meeting with them for several appointments with you where you would further break down their childhood trauma and sort of talk about how it may have affected them? Uh, it would vary a lot with uh, from patient to patient. I mean, you know, at one extreme, um, like the woman who was hospitalized 60 times in 15 years, I mean, once she made the connection, once she recognized the enormous level of stress that her mother was creating for her and had been creating for, for years, um, she was able to process that on her own and um, didn't really need much. Um, you know, a lot of my patients, I asked them to write a letter to the uh, adult who mistreated them when they were a kid, not to mail it, just to write it. And many of my patients have made enormous progress just with that one exercise, um, putting down all their thoughts and emotions uh, about, um, you know, a very difficult relationship, you know, both good and bad thoughts uh, and emotions. Um, and the more they can put onto a piece of paper, very often the less needs to be expressed uh, via their bodies. Um, so I typically, you know, my, my average number of visits with a patient was 1.8. Um, I studied that over uh, 190 consecutive patients at one point just to see, you know, how often I was seeing people. Um, so it's because some people got better quickly and the ones who didn't, um, I would send them to a mental health professional, uh, but I would send them, you know, armed with a lot of ideas of what they should be talking about and working with uh, when they did see that mental health professional. And you were saying earlier that mental health professionals are not equipped to deal with physical symptoms. Um, with this strategy that you were employing of going back to someone's childhood or of identifying current stress triggers in their life, is that not was that not mainstream psychology at the time? Like that would seem like something that's very commonly done within psychotherapeutic work. It, it doesn't seem to be something like revolutionary of just identifying what is causing stress in one's life and what kind of childhood would lead to certain kinds of stresses. Like that doesn't seem to be something that would be missed by mental health professionals. Um, I missed uh, some of what you said. Uh, it faded out there, but um, sorry. Usually... Yeah, so, so, so I was saying, so, so I'm just surprised that what you were doing was so, like revolutionary, like identifying stress triggers in one's life or identifying um, stresses and traumas in one's childhood, like that would seem to be pretty mainstream psychology, would it not be? Well, in many cases, it's not. The, um, the more recent um, psychotherapies that have been developed for this condition, um, pain reprocessing therapy that Alan Gordon does, um, emotional awareness and expression therapy that I do and that Howard Schubiner does and some others, um, intensive short-term dynamic psychotherapy that's uh, been uh, hugely developed by uh, psychiatrist Alan Abbas in Halifax. Um, what these have, in the, you know, there's a lot of overlap between these three and what they have in common is number one, they are aiming to alleviate symptoms, not just to help people cope with them. 
they are also uh, aiming towards um, patients coming to recognize powerful emotions that they may not have recognized before. Um, there, we're helping people um, recognize certain uh, dysfunctional or stress-inducing personality traits like perfectionism or being hypercritical of yourself. Um, and then finally, we're helping people recognize that there may be triggers in their current environment, such as um, the mother of the patient who was having the dizziness and vomiting that, uh, that she was triggered in the town she drove through. Um, her mother was a trigger for her. So those are the, um, um, the kinds of um, issues that the new psychotherapies uh, are paying attention to. Unfortunately, there are only a handful of people who are skilled and trained in these new psychotherapies, but uh, we're anticipating that's going to change because now they have been subjected to gold standard scientific research, randomized controlled trials, um, one in Boston, one in Boulder, Colorado, both published at the end of last September, another one in the Los Angeles um, Veterans Administration system, another one from Ann Arbor uh, looking at fibromyalgia patients. And these new forms of psychotherapy have shown dramatically better outcomes uh, than have been seen with you know, other kinds of uh, you know, psychotherapy, uh, such as cognitive behavioral or acceptance and commitment. Um, the older forms of psychotherapy are not really trying to relieve your symptoms. They're just trying to help you live with them better. So there's a, uh, a distinct shift now in the kinds of treatments that we're using. And they've been shown dramatically in, in gold standard research uh, to be much better than the older forms of treatment. And that's what I tried to do, you know, throughout my career was uh, to help people with, to, to first tell people we can get you better, uh, and then to go through um, all those other areas, you know, buried emotions, triggers, personality traits, and get people pointed in the right direction. And once they understood these basic concepts, once they understood the goals that I had for them, uh, then they could work with um, more traditional psychotherapists and say, you know, here are the uh, the particular dilemmas that I'm struggling with. And typically they could get help for those at that point. It was the the gap in the system was the recognition of what was really going on, the looking into the the deepest causes of these symptoms. Uh, in people and helping them to see it, uh, because once they see it, then then they can deal with it. Right. So the, the novelty to me here is that the the connection between the mind and the body. So making a patient realize that their symptoms are the cause, um, are are the product of um, the psychological causes in their mind that were shaped in childhood or being shaped right now. The, the, that seems to be something that I, I did not even know about until very recently. But all the other things that you're talking about, about buried emotions, about difficult personality traits, about stress triggers, all of that seems fairly mainstream psychology, if I'm not mistaken. Like, and, and, and as you've been saying um, in our, some of our private conversations as well, that the, the first step is the pain reprocessing therapy, which... Uh, for those of you not familiar, uh, Alan Gordon's book, again, The Way Out is excellent. And he has some YouTube videos on that. But basically, again, the idea of 
dissociating your anxiety and your fear and your stress from the actual pain itself and coming to acceptance of it, that, that, that seems to be revolutionary. But all the other stuff that you're saying that has to happen afterwards, where you would defer someone to a traditional psychotherapist, th that of course isn't new of looking at buried emotions, looking at the stress triggers. So um, it's just strange to me um, that that uh, had such a profound impact. Like one would think that if all those things were already practiced within mainstream psychotherapy, then a lot of these patients would not um, be uh, suffering from chronic pain then, right? Yeah, right. you know, you would hope so. But unfortunately, uh, the uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, as one example, is kind of um, overtaken most of psychotherapy um, in the last 20 years, 30 years. Um, you know, something like 80% of psychotherapy that is offered now is cognitive behavioral therapy. And in my experience, for most patients with this condition, it's not sufficient. Um, and that's why, you know, when even, you know, the, the, I'll just cite one example of um, a randomized controlled trial of emotional awareness and expression therapy that was compared with um, cognitive behavioral therapy directly as, you know, two different groups of patients and the outcomes were eight times as successful for the emotional awareness and expression therapy. And, you know, to see that kind of superiority from one kind of psychotherapeutic treatment to another is unheard of. Um, you know, only 5% of the CBT patients um, achieved a minimum standard of uh, relief of their pain. Um, and it was 42% in the emotional awareness and expression therapy group. And unfortunately, the, you know, the EAET, the emotional awareness and expression therapy is um, just not nearly as available. And that's, that's why there was, there's this discrepancy. That's why, you know, psychotherapy is frequently not uh, successful for these patients is because it's not the right kind of psychotherapy. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, the the concepts are, you know, looking at the emotions, looking at the childhood traumas. Those are familiar concepts, um, but they're not as available uh, as they used to be. And that's that's the reason for um, for the gap. Yeah, I suppose I'm biased here because the psychotherapy that I'm doing right now at this uh, great clinic in Vancouver thrive downtown. Um, which I do virtual sessions with, um, where we're doing internal family systems, ISS, which is fairly common from what I understand. I know several other people who've done it. And in that modality, it's about exploring and uncovering the various parts of yourself, like your, you know, if you have a sad part or an obsessive part or a, a part that's still stuck in the past, um, your anxious part, and looking at these different parts of yourself and going into your childhood very specifically. So that's what I've been doing with my psychotherapist. So this is all very familiar to me. Yeah, and I'm doing no, that that's in, good. And, and I'm doing and, that in conjunction with the, the, the MDMA therapy, which people can read about on my Substack, the psychedelic work that I'm doing, which is very powerful. Um, but I, I know you only have a few minutes here, Dr. Clark. Um, before you go, we should circle back on that, that story of that um, 
client you had who um, whose parents were uh, verbally fighting all the time. I believe you left that story off at uh, you sent this, you referred this person to psychotherapy. I'm, I'm curious what happened after that. Yeah, well, apparently uh, she didn't need very much because, um, you know, she was able to um, make excellent progress um, after a relatively small number of visits um, with the psychotherapist. You know, I think the, the breakthrough for her was recognizing uh, just how dysfunctional the environment she'd grown up in had been for her. And, you know, a big part of uh, recovery uh, from that is in with respect to your self-esteem, let's put it that way, that I ask a lot of my patients to look at their negative childhood experience as if they'd been born in a dangerous wilderness or born on the far side of Mount Everest, <clears throat> and to have respect for the heroic perseverance that was needed to endure that environment and to come out the other side of it, and to you know shift their self-image from one of uh, having been a, a failure at solving her parents' problems to uh, having been a, a tremendous success to have endured that and come out the other side and made a successful life for herself. And she was able to, to do that, that flip in her self-image. Um, she was able to um, uh, reduce her own stress level um, as somebody who was constantly trying to solve the problems of everybody else in her world. Uh, she was able to recognize that she deserved to have someone in her life who could give to her as much as she was giving to them. In other words, to, to feel worthy of a mutually supportive relationship rather than one uh, where she was giving 95% of the energy to that relationship. And once she felt you know, those changes in herself, you know, these personality traits that so often come out of a stressful childhood um, and to, you know, deal with her own parents more successfully because uh, they were still in her life to a certain extent and to shift her uh, self-esteem to a, a much more realistic and positive uh, perspective. Um, it changed everything for her. Her physical symptoms uh, went away. Um, and after about 18 months after that conversation that we'd had about her niece, um, she met somebody um, who recognized um, the strength um, and heart that she had. And she was finally able to uh, be in a relationship with him that was mutually supportive. He was a completely different person than the boyfriend she had had in the past. And, um, you know, they're happily married now for, I think, eight or 10 years. Um, and um, just a very successful outcome for her. Wow. Wow, that is, that is incredible. Especially the self-image part about actually having pride or feeling like you actually... Um, succeeded or came out alive and and actually didn't just become you know a complete product of your own environment and actually were able to look at that and overcome it um that 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 is just really interesting to me and uh i think we'll maybe talk about that more next time when you're here uh, like we talked about um does anybody have any questions i know dr clark has to leave in a minute here if there's one question we may take do, do you have time for that 
Dr. Cox? You bet. Okay, does anybody have a question? Just wait a couple seconds here. If not, then we'll, we'll let you go. Um, all right, Phil wants to ask you a question. Yeah, fire away. All right, Phil. Hi, go ahead. sorry, I wasn't quite, I haven't was calling in a long time. Thank you, Doctor. Um, I wonder if you could, given the context of the conversation, talk a little bit more about where the MDMA therapy that Rob was mentioning might fit in with some of the other modalities you've uh, experienced and have worked with. Yeah, it's a good question. It's not something that I have used in my own practice. Um, it, you know, I basically closed my um, individual practice some years ago to run a nonprofit in this field. Um, and, you know, it's, that's the endchronicpain.org that I mentioned earlier. Um, so I haven't used MDMA or any of the other psychedelics. Uh, Oregon, interestingly, is going to be opening psilocybin clinics uh, in the next couple of years. Um, and, you know, the, the research in this field is still very preliminary. We still are not uh, um, clear necessarily on the long-term outcomes of using these treatments, uh, but they do seem to have uh, value uh, for people, particularly uh, those who have tried, um, you know, more traditional, uh, more widely uh, researched and accepted uh, treatments. And, you know, how they work isn't exactly clear, but it's um, possible that uh, what they're doing is um, enhancing what we call nociplasticity, which is the capability of um, nerve circuits to change themselves uh, in response to treatment. So um, we know that from the Boulder back pain study that the psychotherapy that was used to alleviate uh, patients' back pain resulted in anatomic changes in their brain circuits because they they scanned the patient's brains before and after uh, their treatment, and the brains were different. So the, the psychotherapy was capable of producing real changes in nerve circuits. And it could well be that uh, the MDMA and the psilocybin uh, and some other uh, hallucinogens that have been tried may be um, facilitating the uh, innate capability of the brain to change its own circuits in response to treatment. So that might be how it's working. But, you know, what are the long-term benefits? What are the long-term risks? Um, you know, we're, we still need more information, more, more good science uh, to help us with those answers. Yeah, yeah, of course. There's definitely a need for more research in this area. But what we have so far is quite compelling with the the MDMA trials, um, one published in uh, Nature Medicine last year, showing that two thirds of participants fully recovered from PTSD after uh, two or three sessions of MDMA assisted therapy. Um, and another study done at Johns Hopkins on psilocybin uh, showed that uh, uh, another two thirds of the participants in the study who were chronically depressed and had treatment resistant depression. So um, they couldn't find uh, uh, any successful treatment elsewhere. Uh, Two-thirds of those participants um, had a more than 50% reduction in depression symptoms. Um, and about half of those participants went into full remission in their depression symptoms, which is really interesting. And 
Uh, they did a recent follow-up, a one-year follow-up, I believe it was. And the and for, and for the MDMA, they've done that as well, a six-month follow-up and a one-year follow-up. And those findings are still consistent. The the, the symptoms, um, the 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 impact of that lasts not just weeks or months, but but up to a year um, after the MDMA or the psilocybin is administered. So it's it's very interesting what's happening there. Um, before we let you go, um, unless anyone else has a burning question they want to ask, um, we'll we'll resume this uh, this interesting area of conversation uh, next time. All right. Well, it looks like no one else has a burning question. So we'll um, yeah we'll, we'll we'll talk another time, maybe in a few weeks or a month or. We'll, we'll figure that out afterwards, but it was great talking to you, Dr. Clark. These insights are really powerful. They personally mean a lot to me in my own healing journey right now that I'm on. Um, so I'm very grateful to have established this uh, connection with you, and I look forward to uh, learning more from your work. Thanks, Rob. I appreciate your helping to spread the word about this. Uh, there are so many millions of people uh, in Canada and around the world that suffer from this, and we now have uh, well, well-documented scientific treatments uh, that can help people with this. And um, getting the word out uh, is a really important function. So I appreciate your participation in this. Yeah, of course. All right. Thank you for your time. Right. Thanks, ev- thanks, everyone, for uh, listening. This conversation will be able to uh, – people will be able to listen to this again in the future. Or if anybody wants to share a link to this conversation – so that other people can listen to, uh, feel free to do that. Um, one other thing I'll, I'll quickly announce, um, this podcast is now available on Spotify and Apple as the great people at Colin have been expanding this platform. So you can listen to this episode on Spotify, Apple, uh, and other platforms. Uh, just search up Noble Truths Ravarora on Spotify or the other platforms and you can download the episode and listen to it while driving or doing whatever you have to do. So. Um, it's just really exciting news, but yeah, thanks for listening and we'll, uh, we'll see you next time. All right. Thanks, Dr. Clark. Thank you.